Hello, welcome to the Word on the Hill. We are the Linky Guys, and you're listening to Father Peter Musset and Scott Powell. You sound like a character from Homestar Run. <laughs> you remember the marshmallow guy? Hello, <laughs> oh, I'm Mr. Schmallow. <laughs> Remember Mr. Schmallow? Yeah, I do. Yeah, isn't it like puffed, puffed sugar just for you? Sugar puffs. Sugary puffed delights. What I'm trying to do is is remember how, for those of you tune in on a consistent basis, we had a discussion maybe this last week or the week before on how Scott has a tremendous old-timey speaker voice. And literally, I just want to be like you. You believe me, you don't. <laughs> Maybe in that small aspect. I have a mea culpa I have to uh, issue on this week's podcast. A culpa for the mayas. And I'm, I'm hesitant to issue it because I don't really think I was in the wrong but, may, but maybe oh, I was no and, and I don't this all makes me very concerned so I want to apologize to both Josh Dye and to the entire city of Wichita Kansas for apparently um, suggesting that you were not that significant of a city I compared apparently on the podcast I was told that I compared Colossae where the letter of Philemon took place to just your basic average Ooh. nothing special about it town like Wichita, Kansas, which I don't think I actually said it that way. You, you kind of did. I remember now. I love Wichita, Kansas. Me too. And I met like it's a good, hearty, hardworking, you know, uh, salt of the earth, just good place. One of the and best I, bookstores in the world is in know. Wichita, Eighth Day Books. Eighth Day Books. I actually have heard of that. But I didn't mean to imply it was like a blah town. It was just like it's a solid, hardworking Salt of the earth kind of a place, like Colossae. That's all I meant. So if I've offended any of the Wichitaians who are listening this week, I, I apologize. Wichitonians? Wichitonians? Wichitans. Which, which state is Wichita? Kansas? Kansas. Oh my gosh! No. I just had a brain. I just had a no, brain block. Fine. Well, hey, we're going into the twenty fourth Sunday in ordinary time, which, if it were a feast, it's Our Lady of Sorrows. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. So, is that like an optional feast, or is it? No. You said if we're a feast. Well, solemnities trump everything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I always like to look and oh, see, see what, what the saying. story is for that day. So, so if I could title this podcast preemptively, my title was going to be a tale of three prodigals. Oh, that's what, and it's been kind of you know floating in my head. Tale of Three Prodigals. That's when it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. times. <laughs> <laughs> yes, thank you. Yeah, there you go. So All our right. first reading is from Exodus, yeah. thirty-two, chapter seven, eleven. 13 to 14. <laughs> all right. Okay. We're we gonna sing them all. Our responsorial psalm is from Psalm 51. We're we gonna sing them all. Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verse 3 to 4. I can't, I'm not gonna commit to that. <laughs> uh 12 through 13, and then 17 and 19. And the response itself is coming from Luke 15, verse 18. Which leads us to our gospel, but we have to go via the second reading. Second reading is first Timothy 1, 12 to 17. You don't get first Timothy very often. No, everybody's all about Second Timothy, <laughs> two twenty-two. Man, this is what it is. Are teaching we doing... teachers to teach? Oh yes, because it's very easy to remember Second Timothy two twenty-two, teaching teachers to teach. Yeah, because there's a lot of tattoos today. Junior, is it this week? So, Jill Jill Hall, our friend, yeah, sent us an email or a message on Facebook or something, pointing out that I believe it's this week. Every day this week is a palindrome. What? Right? So nine, one, one, one. two, one, nine. 
91319. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's palindromic week. It's palindrome week. What made me think of that? Um, it's because Second I- Second Timothy 2, too. You threw Second out number, th- yeah, numbers yeah. that are not palindromic, but- Well, because I also mentioned that I asked you today, would you wear your clothes backwards around with me and you did make everybody jump? Yeah. Which is kind of like a palindrome. Daddy Mac will make you want to- Jump. It's not. Jump. How so it, then our gospel- Anyway, it just made me feel good to be known. <laughs> our love of palindromes, or your love, really. Okay, our gospel, that's my turn. Well, it's, it's also chiasmus. Dude, this yeah. is going to be a long podcast if we keep going like this. Well, we're right? not going to. Luke 15, <laughs> chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. Speaking of long things, verses 1 through 32. It's a long gospel. Yeah, man. Like, There's I, a shorter version that is an option, um, but I don't think you should choose it. I don't ever. Yeah, I, it, it's so funny. You say how long it is, and I yawn because I'm like, you all totally right. did yawn. I actually like to tell people at the beginning of mass that it's a long gospel because it's going to be a long one today, Cause, folks. Because like, if you don't realize it's a long gospel and you're standing, you get to like a couple minutes in, and you're like, How's, this is really long. Why am I standing? How long is this going to go on? Whereas if you know it is, then you're like, it's it's like I know this is going to be a long trip, and then you have more patience for it. Do you do you warn people on Palm Sunday? No. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Exodus chapter one. The prodigal son number four. Number one. What is wrong with me? Prodigal, prodigal number one. Son, number four. No, number one. Pro, number four right now. There's not even any The fours. tale of the three prodigals. This is prodigal four. <laughs> Just to start. Actually, there are four prodigals, technically. Oh, it's cool. The fourth one is me. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, we are, maybe we are the fourth. Uh, uh, all right. Uh, Exodus 32. Is that, It really is a story of, of the first prodigal in the Bible. No, that can't be the first prodigal in the Bible. But anyway, it fits within the theme. So, Dude, what's Exodus- really cool is that I read the I read the wrong chapter because it you. was because I woke up early to study and What chapter do you read? 36. And I was like What happens in 36? Well, this is the thing is that there's a uh, there's a purpose and I think God led me to 36 before. So, let's let's go through and then I'll tell you my insight in a little I'm while. I'm just trying so curious what happens. Is it instructions for building like the table in the in the tabernacle? It's it's no, it's the guys who start to build the the oh, the, yeah. the tabernacle. I mean, I knew it was around the the building it's, yeah, Oli Dab and Medab or something oh, like yeah. that. Oh, yeah. Well, it's funny because actually this section we get here sort of falls in. It, it, so in Exodus, you have chapters 25 through 31, which is essentially when God gives Moses the commandment to build the tabernacle as a way for God to be with the people and travel alongside of them and have his presence dwell with them. Then in chapter 35 through 40, you actually get the building, but there's this little um, pause in the middle of it, of 32 through 34, where there's a delay in the building project between the conception and the plans and the actual building. And the <laughs> delay is, is pretty which is ugly. Every, every, bro. <laughs> every, this is where, this is like the patron saint story of delays in construction projects <laughs> because of profound sin and, they and build, idolatry. And they build the wrong thing. They build the wrong thing. It's, uh, they build what they ought not build. It's yes. like showing up and your contractors have like, I, I can't even think of the yeah, 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 like, We built a fifth garage for you. You're like, that's that not was, quite that's, right. That's not what we were looking for. We built for. a pagan temple for you. <laughs> you're, like, you're like, in your new ranch home. Yeah, like I was hoping for a Catholic chapel and you made me a Buddhist temple. Yeah, that's weird. But but it's it's this delay because this is where Israel falls into her her huge sin of worshiping one of the gods of the nation that enslaved them and entrapped them and turning backwards. And it's this whole scene. They, they, um, Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the law because the people didn't want to receive it themselves. They didn't want to hear God's voice in their ears because it was too scary and too hard. 
So Moses goes up. They see the mountain shrouded in smoke and fire and lightning and all this stuff. And they're like, well, he's done. There's no way he could survive that. So now we're this. that means if Moses is gone, then this God that he represented couldn't have panned out. He must not have been real. So let's go back to the old things. Let's go back to our former way of right, life. Right, because, I mean, they're seeing lightning and thunder. And the mountain's fire. on fire. Yeah, and they're like, they're <laughs> like that dude is toast. Oh, yeah, there's He's no done. <laughs> they're like, that was nice that he went for a hike. Yeah, that's no, like, true. Yeah, I guess whatever that was. Yeah, it's true. So so they turn to this idolatry. Moses simultaneously is up on the mountain receiving God's law. And God tells him um, basically what's going on below. What does it say? He says, go down at once to your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt, for they have been depraved. This is the moment that God <laughs> starts calling the people Moses's people. And I always hear... You know when like a husband and wife like are frustrated with their kid and they're like, "He's your son." <laughs> yeah. Like, look at what your son is. Doing. It's like God's doing that. Yeah. And I almost wonder. I mean, God. God is God. He's so far beyond all of this. But I wonder if this is a sort of way of God condescending, in a certain sense, to kind of speak to us in this way that we'll kind of understand. I mean, he's what what he's doing in this passage with Moses. This is not really God abandoning his people. It's not God saying, really, I'm out, even though that's what God seems to imply. It's the moment that God is trying to build Moses into an intercessor. That's what his task is. It's not saying, I'm so frustrated, I'm so fed up with these people, I'm out. It's him actually speaking in a certain way to see and test Moses' heart. How far are you willing to go, Moses? How faithful are you willing to be to these people? It's like it's like the movie Free Willy. How far are you willing to go for a friend? That's exactly right. <laughs> um, but it's funny the the word that God uses. He says uh, they've become depraved. That's what you'll hear at mass. Um, but the word the the better translation is corrupted. The word is um, shakat shakat in Hebrew, and shakat it's uh, the first time it's actually used in scriptures in Genesis six when it talks about the flood. The Noah's flood happened because all of humanity became shakat. And the proper context is it's literally like fruit gone bad or gone moldy. So you know when you go in the fridge and you check the Tupperware way in the back and you're like, oh my gosh, that's horrible. That's shakat. That's the word that you would use. <laughs> that's and like so, my coffee cup. So. <laughs> oh, sick. Yeah. But that's what God, I mean, so imagine the potency of God saying that to Moses. Your people have become like moldy pasta in the back of the fridge. Like oh. they've gone bad. They've gone, cor- and not to make light of it, but it actually is a pretty visceral <laughs> verb, right? Um, there's a similar word used in Leviticus to describe a sacrifice that is unsuitable for worship. Something that actually has no place liturgically speaking in the temple, mm. which is interesting too, that, that he's saying something about the people of God, God have gone to Shakat. And so God says to Moses, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And, and I mean, imagine you're Moses. You've been leading these thousands of people. They don't listen to you. They don't trust you. They're complaining constantly. They're right. always whining. And God's finally like, great, let's go. I, I'm going to drop them and I'm going to make you singularly Moses a great nation. And this is the moment. What's so beautiful about this is that this is when Moses shows his character. It shows what kind of heart he has. And he becomes, again, an intercessor. It's similar to Mo- to Abraham. Remember when he intercedes um, to God on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah? But it's greater than Abraham because Abraham is suggesting like, okay, if there's this many people faithful, then will you save them? You know, save them? If there's this many people, then are they okay? Moses doesn't give any parameters. He doesn't give any restrictions. As long as there's 10 faithful people still in Israel, will you not leave them then? 
Moses seems to suggest, no, they, I get it. They've all gone bad. They're shakat. They're done. And yet I'm going to stake my claim with this rotted group of people because they are yours and they are mine. And then he turns it back. He's like, no, they're your sons. And you did this, God, and you led them out. Um, so he's he tells God that God's name is on the line. And Moses asks God to remember, don't forget, you made promises. And if you are God, if you're the God that we believe that you are and you've made promises, then what does it mean that the God who is God doesn't keep his promises? He's like, you must. And that's when God, you know, kind of like the, the sensei <laughs> is like, now you see, now you get it. Okay, let's go. Mm, now you're of my heart. Now you're of my heart. That's what God is doing here. It's not God messing with Moses or trying to, you know, deceive him somehow or or having his mind changed. It's allowing Moses into God's heart. That's, that's exactly it. That's really, and that's actually a different mode of intercession than merely yes. just saying, hey, you got to fight for your right to party over here. You know, <laughs> no, but saying like, That's no. what they're saying down below. Yeah, <laughs> they are, yeah, you know the saying? Beastie Boys are definitely down there <laughs> leading the charge. With some brass monkey, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah. Yes. So, so I don't know. <laughs> what do you, how do I add to that? I don't even know. Right. But like, here they are. And, and, but I like that because actually, as you were talking, I was saying to myself, I was like, what does it mean to intercede? It's to actually put on the mind. Now we would say the mind of Christ, the yes. mind of God, the Father, yes. the mind of God saying like, do you see, I am going to join myself to you yes. and fight for you, but I need you to actually understand what the real consequences of these things are yeah. so that you can, as you have my mind. And what an interesting perspective into Jesus we get then. Absolutely. Who has the, who says, not my will, but your will be done, Father. Right. I'm so identified that I'm actually literally going to join myself to you. Yeah. I'm going, I am joined to you and I'm going to take your mind on as the intercessor for these people. As I join myself to them. Right. And take on all of their consequence and all of their brokenness. Whoa, this is a whole different way of, I've never actually been able to understand, because uh, I've heard the answer before, but mm. I've never grasped it as actually Moses seeing it from the point of view of God. He enters into the heart of God. I like how you said it that way. Yeah. And then this is what we say as Christians, that, Christ is the lens for how we read all of this stuff. So when we're seeing Moses, we're seeing what's happening and what God is doing to Moses through the lens of Christ. Right. And we're saying, oh, no, Jesus just embodies what God has been doing all along and what he's been trying to get out of us all along. He's simply the, the, the incarnation of the God who always was, who was here back in the time of Moses. We see him, but now through Christ, we see it clearer and we see God for who he always was. Right. And, Which is really what the psalm is getting at. And because I look, well, this is the thing is, so the Lord repented in the punishment and, and pun, the punishment he had threatened relented, to inflict. Not repented. He relented. Oh, relented. Which is different. Uh, that's so God funny. I read it so is, fast. is a bit of a different. God yeah. doesn't repent. God's not sorry. What does there, the word relent mean? He, 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 he doesn't do something. <laughs> I, I, it, but this is where I, I'm. Yeah, it's tricky because part of it is the scriptures using weak human language to describe something that we actually don't have words for, right? Right. Because God is not sorry, God is not sad. I mean, there there are all of emotions that are wrapped up into the Godhead, but you know, He's not like, oh, you're right, Moses, I was wrong, I'm mea culpa. You know, He's not like me giving a mea culpa at the beginning of this podcast. <laughs> he doesn't do that. He is 
relenting of what he 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 suggested he was going to do for the sake of Moses understanding him better. But that's yeah. where it's a little tricky. And some translations actually might say repented. But again, it's because we're grasping at weak human words after something that we don't have words to describe. And that's what we mean when we say God has condescended to us. He's right. like, fine, I'll enter into your way of thinking and, and talking about things to help you to come higher. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not able to get to the technical definition in the midst of all of it. Uh, like to understand it, I'd have to spend some time. But but yeah, but what I like is, is, is that he comes back from that. Like bec- the reason why I wanted to actually even bring up the word repented or yep. relented is to say that he gave an in- integral response, which Moses did. God, the God Father, did. the the and and that an integral response involves the whole person. And when somebody acts with their whole person, it's really intense. Yeah. And the response from Moses was his whole personhood for his people, and and that that and so when God like get, get, uh, moves d- 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 like it says oh because he actually took on and he joined himself in integrity to the father and that, say that again he joined himself in integrity to the father moses joined himself in integrity to the father because your form- formulation of that sentence is the exact antithesis of something that's going to happen in the gospel Okay. Oh, you, you hear what I'm oh, saying? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Just when you said it, I was like, wait a second. Yes, that's actually what's so beautiful. So we have uh, Prodigal One. Now we move into the prodigal. Well, so who's Prodigal One? Is Israel. Israel, right? The the firstborn son of God. So Prodigal One. Okay. Um, but uh, I'm going to get ahead of myself because I've got a fascinating reflection on this. Okay. I, I was wondering so, if you were going to be like, let's start with the gospel today and then everything else. I, like, I, I, I thought you were going to ask for it, but I was like, nah, he's not going to. I, I was playing ans- that game. Well, the answer to things actually, I think, lies in the first reading. The answer to a question the gospel proposes lies in the first reading. I think I, or some, I'm seeing something. Okay. Okay. So Psalm 51, have mercy on. So uh, I, I will arise and go, and to, go my to my father. father. So that's the the pull from Luke from the prodigal son story. But then the psalm itself, Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, in your goodness and may your great compassion wipe out my offense, thoroughly wash me from my guilt, my from my sin, cleanse me. Traditionally, Psalm 51 was understood to be, and this is what the tradition suggests. Psalm 51 was a psalm of David after Nathan had come to him and pointed out that he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And killed her husband. And killed her husband and, and had a child out of, you know, all, all the things. That's what the context for this is. And the reason I find it so significant, so how do you, which is beautiful, and it's a psalm about repentance. But here's what I find remarkable. And again, I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit, but it, it applies with the psalm. Um, if you relate this back to the first reading, Who's, who in the first reading would be saying Psalm 51? Well, this is Moses on behalf of the people. Aha. And that's what I find fascinating is Israel does not seem to repent here. And it takes them a long time before they actually do repent. And even their repentance is a bit half-hearted later yeah. on. They're calf-hearted, it's a, it's calf-hearted, calf-hearted. <laughs> uh, thanks, Scott. Um, you're welcome. It's in a Scott Hahn book. Yeah. But it's Moses who is the only one who didn't fall to the sin. Moses did not worship the golden calf. He did not commit idolatry. Yet he is the one that chooses to then stand in the place and say, no, I'm with them. I am a part of them. And so in his voice, he says, have mercy on me. In other words, have mercy on us. I think of Isaiah when he goes to the throne room of God and he's like, 
he doesn't point out his own holiness and fidelity. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell with the midst of a people of unclean lips. I'm a part of an unholy nation and I'm trying to be holy, but I'm not going to try to separate myself from them because I'm one of them. For better or for worse, I'm with them. Mm. And I'm going to ask on their behalf, if they can't even do it themselves, for forgiveness. Right. And I'm hearing what I'm, I, I am getting ahead of myself and I'm going to do it anyway. What I'm hearing... And this is where we never focus our time because we've all heard the prodigal son story a million times, right? Or at least a lot of us have. Yeah. What we don't focus our time on is the older son. And what I'm hearing in the response of Moses is what the older son ought to have said. The older son had a sort of moral responsibility in the schema of salvation history to stand on his brother's behalf. And say, no, I'm with him. He really, royally messed up. But I'm with him. And I want God's mercy. And I want my father's mercy for my little brother. Because he doesn't even know how to repent. And I'm, maybe I'm trying to reflect too much there. Maybe I'm taking it too far. But there's, there's no, something fascinating. Know. I like it. I Moses like it. is kind of like an older brother who's watching his little brother's sin profoundly. And who's not trying to shame them. And say, look at how horrible they are. I mean, he does a little bit. He's like, God, you, these are your people. <laughs> but at the same time, he intercedes. He's like, I'm going to stand up for them because they have failed miserably. But I love them. And so I pray for them. And I beg you to not leave them. Right. The older brother in the prodigal son story seems to want the opposite. Right. Yeah, ditch them, Lord. Make me a nation. Anyway, maybe more on that later. Okay. So Psalm, uh, the Timothy. first Timothy. Okay. Prodigal son number two. Tell me why. First Timothy is a letter from Paul to an individual. So most of Paul's letters are written to communities of people, parishes, in other words. So Romans, Corinthians, Galatians, they draw uh, groups. First Timothy and Titus. So first and Timothy. Philemon. Yes, he's an individual too. But it's really the community. It's really written to the community, the church that meets in his house. It actually is addressed that way to Philemon and the church that's in your house. But first Timothy, second Timothy, and Titus are what are called the pastoral epistles. So they hold a little bit of a different category. And they're called the pastoral epistles because Timothy and Titus were both basically bishops or pastors that Paul left behind in different places to be leaders in his place, in his his absence. And so Timothy, uh, where was Timothy? He was in Ephesus, I believe. So he was the bishop of Ephesus after Paul leaves. So Paul gives these two letters, basically instructing Timothy on, here's what it means to be a leader. Here's what it means to lead people and to be a spiritual authority, which is what Moses was doing, right? Right. And that's where this kind of ties in. Titus was uh, on the island of Crete, I believe. And again, Titus is a little bit shorter, but he gives him instructions too. But Timothy... Um, I always thought that guy was a Cretan. Ah, I see what you're doing there. So here's how he gives his young bishop instructions on actually how to lead. He says, beloved, I'm grateful to him who has strengthened me, Jesus Christ our Lord, Christ Jesus our Lord. Because he considered me trustworthy in appointing me to the ministry. Because I was once a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. This is Paul writing. I was arrogant, but I have been mercifully treated because I acted out of ignorance in my unbelief. And indeed, the grace of our Lord has been abundant along with the faith and love that are there in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. He, Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Of these, I am the foremost and he goes on in this. So Paul is really this, the, he's the prodigal. Paul is the prodigal. Paul is Israel. 
And he's saying, there was like a Moses who interceded for me. Mm. I was looked upon with mercy. I was Israel at the golden calf incident. I was ignorant and I was arrogant and I was a blasphemer. And uh, he doesn't say idolater, but I mean, he blasphemed Jesus Christ. He killed people on his behalf. He is Old Testament Israel. He said, but God showed me mercy, just like he showed all of Israel mercy. And I think it's significant that that's the narrative Paul is giving this young pastor as instruction on how to shepherd people. Hmm. Don't forget, as you look over your congregation and you're going to be tempted to find the worst people and the people that just keep messing up or keep being, you know, the thorns in your side or whatever it is, don't forget the one who taught you, your predecessor, your bishop, Timothy, was one of those. Hmm. As bad as they could be, I was probably worse. Hmm. So remember that as you become a new leader which I think is significant because, again, yeah. he's teaching him. And Paul, who is, as he says, one of the greatest Pharisees and rabbis of his time, is obviously has to be thinking about Moses and Moses' leadership. Well, how was Moses a leader? By interceding and standing up on behalf of sinners. That's what you do. That's how you be a leader. Yeah. And I think that's what Paul. So prodigal number two, it's Paul himself. And he's saying if you remember that, then you're going to be a much better leader. So wow. I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. Then we get into the long gospel. We get into the long gospel. And uh, in Luke 15, the whole ch- so prodigal son, that's the one that always gets the attention. But, but Luke we got fif- like 10 coin. We got well, the 10 coin lady. Yeah, there's three stories actually yeah. that show up here about things that are lost and found. Sheep, coins. Sheep, coins. And dudes. Boys. <laughs> Sheep, <laughs> coins, and a kid. Yeah. I don't know if he's a kid. He's probably grown. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, if he if he's gambling and stuff, then he's at least in his he's at least sixteen. <laughs> Who knows what the gambling age was in Palestine? <laughs> in this time, want to read Josephus to figure it out. Um, but here's what I want to say, and I I, I let you age. take it wherever you want to go because I don't want to. I don't have much to say about the prodigal son. I could say a million things about the prodigal son, but here's what I do want to say is the context in which Jesus tells these three stories. Mm. And the context in which he tells the three stories is this. It says, Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Tax collectors and sinners, who are the sinners? Well, there's all sorts of categories through which people consider people sinners, right? Right. Mary Magdalene was considered a sinner. Maybe it was just people who were not adhering to the Pharisaic laws. You know, all, all these, these undesirables. Jesus is hanging out with them. And they were all drawing near to listen to Jesus. But... The Pharisees, who were the self-appointed shepherds of Israel, and that was how they were known in the first century. They were the self-appointed moral authorities. They had no actual authority. The Sadducees held authority and the Herodians held authority. The Pharisees, I mean, if you're thinking politically, the closest political authority they had, they were like lobbyists, right? (laughs) They could suggest, they could push, but they had appointed themselves and were accepted by people as the spiritual authorities. People saw the Pharisees as having more spiritual authority than the priests in a lot of cases. Yeah, because they were hardcore. They were hardcore and a lot of the priests were corrupt and a lot of the priests had had, uh, compromised and things. So they, but but it's important to note that they had appointed themselves as the self-designated shepherds of Israel. They called themselves the shepherds. That's important. So the Pharisees and the scribes began to complain. They're whining. They're saying, this guy, this Jesus, he welcomes sinners and he eats with them. So presumably, where's Jesus? He's eating with a bunch of sinners and undesirable people. He's presumably inside of a house. Maybe he's in somebody's house. They're sharing a meal. Where are the Pharisees? They're outside. 
right? They're not in there and they're not at the table with him. They're outside and they're complaining and they're eavesdropping and they're listening, right? What's he going to say? Under the eaves. Under the eaves, right? Is that where that comes from? Yeah. Oh, I didn't yeah, know. Yeah, because they're standing under the under eaves the listening eaves, at the windows. Dropping. Dropping the windows, dropping it like it's hot. Jesus knows they're there. He's fully aware. He's like, I know that they're out there. It's like, so, it's like the total Franco Zeffirelli version. Totally, isn't I, it? I mean, Franco Zeffirelli's version is my very favorite. But it says, so, uh, so he, so to them, Jesus addressed this parable. So he's talking for the people outside. Yeah, it's but interesting. He's, but he's so good because it's the sinners and the tax collectors who need to hear it. But then who's the them? The Pharisees outside. It's all, it's both. But that's really important because you could read this simply and be like, oh, he's sitting with sinners and tax collectors. He's telling them a parable. He's like, no, I'm, I'm, I want you guys to hear it, but I'm telling the Pharisees a parable. Right. And that changes everything because that's then he starts. totally fair. Then he says, what man among you having a hundred sheep? So what shepherd among you, do you see where he's going here? Mm. Having a hundred sheep and losing one of them would not go after the 99 in the desert and go after the lost one until he finds it. And when he finds it, he puts it on his shoulders, great joy. He comes home, calls together his friends and neighbors. He says, rejoice with me. Let's have a party uh, because I found my lost sheep. And the same way I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who have no need of repentance. Dude, I can tell you that there's one <clears throat> Pharisee kid out there who's like a lesser Pharisee kid who's looking over at the other Pharisee and he's like, like he's like, come on, that's what I'm trying to convince you guys of. <sighs> Do you think so? Yeah, I think I that there's- I hope so. I totally can see, because mm. there's no place that's in, mm. like there's no community that you don't have some young buck in there yeah. who's who's like trying to stir things up, but isn't getting the respect or the do, the propers. It's interesting. That was Timothy. That's part of why Paul writes those pastoral epistles, because he says, I know you're really young and they don't respect you. So here's a letter of credence, basically, from me telling mm, them that you're legit. That's cool. That's interesting that you say that. Yeah. But but I mean, that's really powerful. So then it's really powerful. So then there's a bunch of people and man. They're like, oh, he's he knows that we're under the eaves over here. So they're the self-declared shepherds. Which means what's their job? Is to get the other people to repent and, and so who, bring though? them back in the fold. Who? The lost sheep. The sinners and the tax collectors. The people who are inside. So Jesus is literally saying, hey, Pharisees, I have done your job for you. Mm-hmm. You failed at this. But where am I right now? I'm actually with the lost sheep. And instead of rejoicing and celebrating with me like the guy in the parable, you're literally standing outside of the house mocking the sheep that you have lost. You've taken the job that was yours, you failed at it, and not only that, you've taken the victims of your failure, and you've chosen to mock and try to humiliate them. And this- It's a really powerful story to It's me. a really powerful story, and the, and the whole reason why I really believe in this age, we cannot use shame to try to control the behavior of the world around us. Unless it's the Pharisees. Unless it's a Pharisee, I'm just kidding. unless we want to be Pharisees, well, you know what I'm saying? Like, true. like you look around and, and like, we're not trying to create some sort of polemic war between the justified and the unjustified. We're trying to create bridges so that the people who are experiencing being lost and, and confused by a world that's around them so that they can experience mercy and kindness and truth and beauty and dignity and who they are. And this is what's like, so this is what's so hard is that right now we can play a one up, let's win game. Or we can actually say, how do we actually create bridges? Now this is hard because bridges, you have to give real reason. You can't just go on some emotional game. 
Yeah. And, and, and oftentimes of reason feels like brutality and reason can be brutality. The truth without love is brutal. Right. Versus the truth in love is a real bridge. Or love without truth, which is... Just whatever. Something it's, else. It's just <laughs> softness. Well, it's funny that you say it that way because, I mean, I think it's really easy to read this story, this parable, to read the story about the parable. Right. And hear Jesus kind of turning it around and being like, look at you fools, you Pharisees, who f- your failures out there. But if you listen carefully to the parable, there's actually an invitation in it. He's saying, look, the shepherd went out and found the sheep. And when he found them, he called everyone together to celebrate, Mm -hmm. which I think what he's implying. And again, this is Jesus, not the shaming Jesus, but Jesus saying, hey, Pharisees, you failed at your job. But guess what? I've done it for you. So now come inside. Let's celebrate together. Right. Because I did your job. Right. And now everything's taken care of. Mm -hmm. So come on in the house. Because there's no point in you staying out there. So he's trying to do exactly what you're saying. Exactly. Now, you can't force that. And if people are hearing it with hardness of heart, then that's what's happening. But there is an invitation in his parable. Right. And then we have, yeah, another story of a woman with some lost coins. Similar themes, right? She finds something that was lost and she celebrates. And then he culminates, he climaxes the whole thing with um, the story of the prodigal son, of course. Which, again, there's a million things we could say about this. But for me, I keep coming back to that elder son who is yes. kind of like the anti-Moses in the story. And I've never seen it that way or thought about it that way. But the first reading made me start thinking about the elder son that way as an anti-Moses. You know what I'm saying? Mm. In the sense that Moses sees the people's sin. He recognizes how absurd it is. He recognizes the shame it's bringing on himself and the shame that it's bringing on the whole nation. But instead of saying, cut them off, get rid of them, they are fools, we don't want them anymore, yes, God, I'm with you, heck with them, he says, no, I will put myself, literally what, what Moses is doing is what Christ later on does. He puts himself in between broken humanity and a good God, and he says, I will stand in the gap. And I will put myself before my sinful brethren, and I will stand in the middle to bridge that seemingly unbridgeable gap. Mm. And God says, yes, right. you see it. The prodigal son's older brother could do the same thing, saying, yes, you've shamed us. You've brought all this terrible stuff. You've embarrassed our family. You've failed, and there should be just punishment for you. But you're my brother, and I love you, and I want you back. But the older brother in the prodigal son story has disavowed himself of being that guy's brother. He says, no, you're not a brother to me any longer. It's funny, in the prodigal, we know the story. The prodigal son is convinced that if he goes back to his father after having squandered the inheritance and losing everything, that his father will take him back as a slave, which means the, the son has already pronounced judgment upon himself, and he's already pronounced himself unfit to be in the family. I'm a slave. That's who I am. That is my identity. Instead of letting the father actually determine what his identity is. He says, no, I'll predetermine it. But the elder brother has also predetermined it. He says, no, yeah, you're not my brother anymore. You're a slave. And again, I'm not trying to overread this, but the reason that Moses is held in such a high place in the story of salvation history is not because he parts the Red Sea. It's not because he turns some stuff into snakes. It's not because he was so articulate and had these great words. It's not even because he brings down the tablets of the commandments. He's held in such high esteem is because he is the intercessor par excellence. 
That is what he does on behalf of Israel. He intercedes to God, the broken people on their behalf. And that is in the tradition why he is so great, right? And why he is tapped into the heart of God. Well, so so I, I as I'm listening and and thinking about the older son and his complaint about the um, a kind of uh, frugality or scarcity of gift. Yeah, he's got many complaints, doesn't he? But yeah, yeah that, that's a good. But this is the thing: is that you didn't even give me any sort of significant gift. Which yeah. is interesting because I go back in my accidental reading from 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 Exodus. <laughs> oh yeah, thirty six. Yeah, what happens is in thirty two. What are they doing? They give they give some jewelry. They're contributing a little bit of something to to be able to create this yeah. this idol. Apis. But Apis, which is which is like, but it's but it's scarce. It's it, right. it's just like a, it's a little bit. You go to thirty six, and once everything actually becomes ordered towards. Christ in the tabernacle and everything start to get set up. What happens is that so many materials are voluntarily brought forth that literally they have to say, please stop bringing stuff forward. I've never noticed that. But but what that suggests, because as you were saying that, I was like, well, nothing says that they were stingy about bringing their stuff in 32, except if you read 36 and you realize how much stuff they still have. They have so much. It necessitates that they were stingy. It was this, huh. it, so it's because you see the difference between the, uh, the abundance and the stinginess. How interesting is is, is the is that generosity and gift actually flow flow from a proper ordering. So generosity and gift flow from a proper ordering. That's good. So they're good. so that as they're going towards God, as they're received, because huh. because I was looking at the I was I was huh. looking at the symbols of you know a robe, a ring, and sandals. Yeah. What what is what is a, a robe implies something like you know office or it's like dignity it's it's bubble this cloth it's bub- bubble bath you put a robe on after a bath <laughs> so, it's not that funny it was funny <laughs> yeah but but i mean it's like anytime somebody gets a robe so you look at uh fancy you know hotel fancy hotel <laughs> Sorry, I like, <laughs> i'm trying to make a point over here you rat that's good is uh is like uh jacob um he was um uh, jacob gave to um uh, joseph the beautiful uh, yes. coat. The, yes, the, yeah, robe, he, the robe. The robe. He yeah. says, you're yeah. an administrator. Yes. Actually, that, that's what it meant. It's you're like, a suit. You're a suit. You actually get to consider what is worthy to give to now. Yeah. So so then a ring actually says authority. It's like this- Identity. Uh, authority I, and identity. Authority, identity. Because so it's, it's the family sign. It says, I am a, fa- a son of this family. Right. This is So, so what happens is that yes. now he has- Authentic authority, mm. real family, yeah. and shoes, which says that you can walk wherever you want. Interesting. You can travel. You're yeah, you're yeah. you're not you're not a slave. Yeah. And so it's saying, okay, now we yeah. actually get to bestow gift. You get to do it out of this familial identification, mm. and you get to do it in freedom. Which is the the older son. What does he? He says, "I don't have anything. I can administer yeah. nothing. I don't even get to choose a calf for myself. Yeah. I have no gift, and I'm a slave." Is that is that it, all of these things that he wishes his older son had? Do you think he's wearing shoes, a robe, and a ring as he says that? Oh, probably because. That's probably what the brothers wear. That's probably right. That's interesting, isn't it? I it can't is. prove that, but I mean, there's yeah, a good reason to assume. Right. And and so and so then I look at Israel, who they actually, when they're starting to build in this this moment of worship, is that they have identity with God. They have authority in him and they have the freedom to be able to come and go. And so yeah. I was just looking and, and, yeah, and like, yeah. isn't that what we're trying to do in this in this age? Is yeah. saying 
No, you have all the gifts of that God has ever wanted to pour out. They are for you. That's what this podcast is about. But, Here's all your giftedness, people. But the gospels you've you've also just articulated the gospel message. What is it? I'm teaching on the Gospel of Matthew right now. Matthew begins by Jesus establishing his authority and giving his authority to his disciples. Yes. Um he describes at nausea at, at length, not nausea, but at length of the identity of believers. Yes. Blessed are you, for yours is the kingdom of God. You are I have an identity as sons of the kingdom. Right. And then how does it end? Go out to all the nations, oh. proclaiming the gospel, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Authority, identity, and going. Shoes on your feet. Wow. That is the gospel that you've articulated in a very certain in a very real way. That's that's really kind of cool. You've really totally cool. brought it home, man. So there like we. That. That's, that's because I was it. trying to think of how does this? How, what do we do with all that, though? Right. But that is what the gospels say we are supposed to do with it. Yeah, is to actually take it up and then go. Yeah. And it's so is it's really it's just really beautiful. Yeah. It actually gives you position because mm. uh, um, this is how this is how you're meant to actually be is in is in freedom, authority, and giftedness. Freedom of authority, giftedness, and a call to intercede because it necessitates yes. it. If you do have real authority mm-hmm. and if you do have real identity as a son mm. or a daughter and you have been given shoes to go and to do something about it, that authority and that identity necessitate that when you come across all of the sin and degradation and everything else that we face— our job is not to mock it or scorn it or shame it. It is to intercede on our on its behalf before God. That is what we do with the authority, with mm. the identity, and with the shoes. Mm. Right? Yes. So there we are. So there we are. You guys, thanks for tuning in. Holy, holy goodness. That holy was goodness. Really, that was actually... I I would I I have to be honest as we were approaching this I was like what a, what new can what new can we learn what new can come of this what new can come of this <laughs> why can I I feel like I'm missing a word in there I don't know okay. <laughs> but, but I feel like we got to something new so thank you Scott thank you Father Peter and you, thank you guys for listening yep we'll be back next week with a brand new episode yeah 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 until then peace peace. The Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org A-I-C-T, and you can find the Lanky Guys podcast at lankyguys.org. Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.